Well, good morning once again. How y'all doing? Good. I am glad that you are here. And uh, my name is Pastor Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And if you're a guest with us this morning, I just want to give you a special welcome this morning. And uh, we are finishing Romans 9 through 11. We have come to the end of Romans 11, which means we've come really to the end of the, of the first major portion of Paul's letter from the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, 32, verse 32. And Paul steps back now, and, and he's worshiping. He's written literally a hymn of praise. He's singing a song, exulting over everything that he's talked to us about over these 11 chapters. And so it seemed good to us that if, if Paul is worshiping, and really it's a song, we ought to join Paul in that song. So this morning's going to be a little bit different in our liturgy this morning. We're going we're gonna to exposit and exult over a section of these verses, and then we're going to respond in singing. And then we're going to exult over some more scripture, and we're going to respond in singing. And so we're just going to keep doing that back and forth throughout the service this morning. So would you stand and let me call us to worship with Psalm 68, verse 3. And, and I, I'm praying that even if this isn't true of you as you walked in this morning, because, you know, sometimes, right, sometimes we don't walk into church happy. Is it, right? Can we just be honest about that? And, and that's okay. That's okay. Are, are you listening to me? Like, seriously, this is, not the, this is not the place of fake it. All right, this is a place where we get to be real. The good news plus safety. It's safe to not feel great. But that's why you're here, in the hopes that you will. You will. The righteous are glad, even in their sadness. The righteous are glad. They rejoice before God. They celebrate with joy. Sing to God, grace. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh. And celebrate before him. You ready to celebrate? Okay, get your praise on. Yay, God. All right, why don't you sit down, and as you're doing that, grab your Bibles and open God's holy word to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36 is where we're going to be today. And it is no accident that in the Christian Standard Bible, the heading for this text before us is a hymn of praise. It's exactly what it is. Now listen, listen to Paul go. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the, of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory be to, God. to him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is the word of God in song. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, what we have before us is expressed by the apostle himself, 
wonder and worship for the Father, Son, and Spirit because of what has been displayed in Paul's letter to the Romans. And this is such an important thing for us to be reminded of, and it is such a remarkably wonderful example for us. You see, all theology, all good theology, I mean, really doing theology well, well, that should lead to doxology. And doxology is just a fancy theological word for worship. It's worth-ship. It is ascribing glory to something, or importantly, in this case, as Christians, to someone. All theology rightly grasped and understood with the heart and the mind, with the heart and the mind, with all of us, leads the heart and mind to break out in joyful exultation for what has struck the heart and mind. That's what good theology does. It it lifts us into the worship of God. And so Paul can't help himself because he's been theologizing for 11 chapters of this entire letter and he can't help himself from saying, oh! And he can't help himself from saying, how? Just two teeny little words. Two little interjections that are really verbal explosions because he is a man smitten. He is a man who is filled with wonder and astonishment and amazement. He is a man marveling. At what? What has got Paul so worked up, caught up in wonder? Well, he tells us depths. That's what You see, friends, Paul has been on a long journey of exploration and discovery into the character, plans, and story of the Father, Son, and Spirit, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 32. Paul has seen that God's ways are no longer invisible or hidden. Rather, they have been revealed in Jesus, the Messiah, that because of the revelation granted in the good news, we can now work those things out God's way of putting the world to rights, God's way of doing all things from creation to new creation. (laughs) You see, it turns out to be absolutely spectacular. Paul finds himself standing on the edge of a cliff, looking down into the fathomless sea of God's riches. Has this ever happened to you? Something like this. Maybe you woke up in the morning and you were with your family or friends and as everyone was getting breakfast in the kitchen. Has this ever happened to you? You grab your mug of coffee and you've walked out into the front room and, and you could see there through the, through the window the, the sun starting to come up over the mountains and, it, and the way that the clouds were that particular morning, that it was amazing that it was like the sun was painting with all kinds of colors that, that were just almost beyond your ability to even describe, right? And you're standing with a mug of coffee, and you think, everybody has to see this. So what do you do? You go running back into the kitchen. You're like, you got to come out here. You got to, don't come in. No, right now, put that stuff down. You got to come out. Look. Look. 
Or maybe you're with a group hiking through the mountains and you're, you're headed up those switchbacks. Oh, man, sometimes I hate switchbacks, right? <laughs> it just, it, all of a sudden, your quads are like 150 pounds each. Like, uh, 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 and all you can see is the switchbacks. And, and all you can see is, is the rock face. But then what happens? Like, like if you're in the lead of your little party, right? Like what happens? You, you get up on that rise and you get right over the edge and what do you see all of a sudden? Like you can just see forever. You, you just look out at the, the heights of the mountains and then you look, maybe you look down. I remember when Aaron took me out on Mount Huron and, and we got up to the edge. We weren't quite at the summit yet. We're on this edge and you just look and it was like, oh my goodness. One little slip and I am dead. Like you're looking down, and what do you want to do? You, again, you just want to turn to the people behind you. You gotta get get up here. You can't just like ah. And you could just look and look and look, and you would never exhaust the glory and the riches that are, it's like your eyes almost feel like they're getting filled up, but you, ju- you could just stand there the rest of your life. And it wouldn't get old. I love how I talk to people who've been here for 30 and 40 years, and, I, and I'm just, I'm hoping, I'm like, I'm begging. It doesn't get old, does it? And they say, no. It doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. You see, Paul is, come to the heights of theological propositions and historical explanations and doctrinal descriptions, and he has summited the argument. And all, all he can do now is point to everything that we've heard and everything that we've read and everything that we've studied, and all he can do is say, look, look at the riches of God. Look at the knowledge of God. Look at the wisdom of God. Look at the depths. Which is interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't point to the heights of what we've ascended in the plans, purpose, and and character, and attributes, and, and story of God. Which is interesting to me anyway, because what it feels like we've done is gone up and up and up and up. And he's wanted, ah! Paul didn't, Paul didn't look at the heights. He says, look at the depths of God's riches and knowledge and wisdom. Why, why does he do that? I was reading one author this week who was also musing about this, and he said, Oh, the depth means that there are yet hidden dimensions to God's riches and knowledge and wisdom. They are deep in the sense that they are out of sight. They're unreachable. We can't get to the bottom of them. There will always be depths of God that we do not know because He is infinite and we are finite. We will always be seeing more forever. <laughs> it's just, like, that just makes me really happy. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. It, we'll say of someone, oh, she's so deep. Oh, she's so deep. And what do we mean by that? We mean there is a kind of depth that she has 
that we feel is unlike us, that, that it's almost beyond us. And if that's true of one human relationship to another, if I could look at another human and say, oh, she's so deep. How true of a human in relationship to God. And what is this depth of God? What is so unfathomable about our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? Paul describes the depth in three ways. Oh, the depth of the riches of this God. <laughs> the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, chapter 2, verse 4. The riches of his glory, chapter 9, verse 23. The riches which the King Jesus bestows indiscriminately on all who call on him, chapter 10, verse 12. The riches of his mercy, the inexhaustible riches found in the Messiah himself, the riches of the historical sweep of the divine purpose, the intimate understanding of human motivation, the interlocking of his justice and mercy and kindness and severity, all of it, all of him bearing patiently with terrible human wickedness and grieving over terrible human loss and tragedy, a God who yearns for humans to come back to the one in whose image they were made so that they may find true life. Oh, the death of the riches of God and know the depth of the knowledge of God in the words of A.W. Tozer God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters all mind and every mind all spirit and all spirits all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in the heavenly and earthly realms, in motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. He knows it all perfectly. And as Douglas Wilson opines, take a glance at the number of stars revealed in one photograph from the Hubble telescope. The God we worship knows every one of those stars by name. Psalm, 19, Psalm 174, 47 verse 4. He knows the hairs on every head and numbers every single one of them. Matthew 10 verse 30. There are about 7 billion people alive today. Actually, it's about 8. Did you know that? About 8 billion people. The average number of hairs on a human head range for a redhead, about 90,000. For a blonde, about 140,000. You, you figured that out. And he knows every single hair. And he numbers them all. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Matthew 10, 29. God simply spoke and the vast expanse of heavens and earth came into being. Genesis 1, 1. The human body contains somewhere between 50 and 75 trillion cells. Each one 
of those cells is an exquisitely made library, each one with the capacity to manufacture what the information in its library tells it to manufacture. Every last bird that hops from branch to branch in the deepest wilderness is known to God, Psalm 50, verse 11. Every raindrop, every single raindrop falling on the 49ers and the Packers when the Packers gloriously lost last night <laughs> was prepared by God, Psalm 147, verse 8. And it does not hit your forehead accidentally. He gives food to ravens, Psalm 147, and uses ravens to give food to prophets, 1 Kings 17.4. Galaxies, oceans, mountains, nations, planets, giant stars, and all such things added together. All of that are dust on the scales of our God. Isaiah 40.15. The psalmist declares your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. Yahweh, you preserve people and animals, Psalm 36.6. His understanding is infinite, Psalm 147, verse 5. It must be. It must be. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All the depth of the knowledge of God. We're not done. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. God is unsurpassed in his effectiveness, in his application of the infinite knowledge that he has to bring about good. John Piper writes, God's wisdom is unfathomably deep. He is infinitely wise. That is, he has always been able to conceive and carry out plans that have good goals and that make use of all of the knowledge that he has to bring to pass what he purposes. He knows how to use all the facts of the universe and guide all the events of the universe to achieve the best end. To which we should ask, what's the best end? What's the best end? The best end is the display of the fullness of the glory of God. And it is most beautifully displayed in the white hot worship of his people. The pinnacle of his creation, the very reflectors of his image and glory, voicing glory and adoration and praise. White hot worship. Not lukewarm worship. He's not a lukewarm God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. And he's not done yet. Our white hot worship is made up of the admission that his judgments, his decrees, the things that he orders to be so are unsearchable. Why are they unsearchable? Because they're in the depths. Oh, the depths of God. The word means innumerable. It, it refers to something, well, well, it's not illogical or chaotic, but it's something that's simply beyond the ability of human beings to fully grasp or get our heads around, because he's God. That could bring frustration, <laughs> right? And can we admit that? Like, unsearchable? What do you mean unsearchable? I like finding stuff out. I like facts. I want to read a book. I want to know something afterwards. And I want to know all about it. 
But if we'll allow ourselves to not be frustrated, this will actually fuel wonder. It will actually fuel awe. It will feed white, hot worship of this God to know there's a never-ending stream of discovery that stands before us. And our white-hot worship is made up of the admission that His ways are untraceable. And this admits the inability of human beings fully to comprehend the greatness of God's power or to see in advance that what happens in the world, right? We don't get to see in advance that what happens in the world actually serves the purposes, plans, and designs of God. No one, what Paul is saying is, no one can map out the path that God is walking as he displays history. The path that's appearing before him as he walks as it were, through history. Ron Dobson, standing, sitting right here, is a good friend. And he's taken me on a number of hikes since we've lived here in Salida. And when I thought about this idea of untraceableness and a path that can't be mapped out, I immediately thought of you, Ron. Because Ron's been traipsing around this valley in this region for decades now. And the really great thing, both my son and I have discovered this. <laughs> you took Nehemiah out recently, and he's, he, we, he got back, and he said, you know, Dad, I said, so did you get to see any of the bighorn sheep that he was talking to? Me? I says, you know, we just pulled on over, and we just started walking into the woods. We just start. Ron doesn't follow a path. I mean, sometimes he does, but he doesn't follow a path. Now, me, I need to follow a path. I need all trails. I need maps, like, downloaded onto this little garment on my wrist, or I would die. <laughs> I would go out. I would not come back. They would not find me. Coyotes would just clean me up. Right? But not Ron. He goes out, and he can just walk all over, and then he comes back. One might say his ways are beyond tracing out. You see, our God's ways are often untraceable. And Ron's a lot like God. You see, I, I go out with Ron. I don't always know where the path is that we're going, but I trust him that we'll get back safely because I know he knows the way. And it's the same with my God. Sometimes he takes me places that I don't understand and I don't see a path. But that's who he is. And I'm just called on to trust him and to know that he'll safely bring me through and that I'll get safely home. And the question is, are we willing to accept that? Are we, are we willing to worship him, to actually, because his depths are unsearchable and his ways untraceable, are we actually willing to worship him for that? Father, thank you for rescuing us from our sins, for all our wrongs. Thank you for the inestimable privilege of making orphans into children and that we might call you Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me now to verse 34 and verse 35. And I want you to observe something. 
Paul is a good songwriter. There is a structure, even as he explodes in emotion and exaltation, there's a structure in this song. He moves from three attributes of God, wealth, wisdom, and knowledge, to three questions. And what's more, these two series of three, these, these three attributes and these three questions are connected. <laughs> He's such a good songwriter. You see, Paul has spoken of knowledge, right? And so now he asks his first question, who has known the mind of Yahweh? Paul has spoken of wisdom. And so now he asks his second question, who has given Yahweh counsel? And as we've learned from Paul, this isn't pulled out of thin air. He doesn't do things willy-nilly. I don't get the sense that Paul shoots from the hip. And he's thinking, because we've learned I love this about Paul. I, want, I so want to be like Paul. Paul loves the Bible. Paul loves the Scriptures. He has, and I think he kind of has some favorites. And I think one is his beloved Isaiah, who Paul quotes so often, and who himself, Isaiah is himself a songwriter. <laughs> if you were to go to Isaiah 40 in the Bible, from where Paul is quoting, you would find there the beginning of a long series of songs about God's power to rescue exiles and to usher in his saving reign over all the world. So it makes perfect sense for Paul to want to quote Isaiah. Isn't this kind of how songwriters are, Tim? You're, you're a songwriter. Like you can hear echoes of songwriters that have influenced you in the songs that you're writing. And that's what's happening with Paul. Listen to Isaiah's song. Zion, herald of good news. Herald, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly, which a loudmouth like me loves to hear. <laughs> Raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See. Right? Didn't you hear this? Like, look, look, look. See. Yahweh God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him. And his reward accompanies him. I love this. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He, he, he gathers the lambs in his arms. He, he carries them in the fold of his garment, which means what? He, he's taking, he gets a little lamb, he takes the garment, wraps it around the lamb because it's cold. Get that lamb warm. Makes me think of Seth and Susie, the cabin right now, and they're getting out there in the cold and frozen lambs that can barely, or calves that can move and then get them into warmth, right? That's what he wants. He wants to take us out of the cold harshness of this world and gather us up in his bosom and put us in his robes and get us all warm there next to the Father's heart. He gently leads those that are nursing. <laughs> he gives immature little ones like us food. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And who has marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? 
Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure? Or weighed the mountains on a, on a balance in the hills, on the scales? Who in the world has directed the spirit of Yahweh? And then this that Paul quotes, or who has given him counsel? Indeed, brothers and sisters, who? How could we possibly think that we are to know his mind so that we could give God, this God, our advice or our wisdom or our counsel? Amen and amen and amen and a thousand amens. You may be seated. Turn with me to Romans 11.35. For Paul has a third question for us to consider. And this question is inspired by a man who had a whole host of questions for God. He was a man in history who was a very godly man. A very godly man. So much so that the God of the universe would say of this man, there is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright. He is a man who fears me and shuns evil. One might think that such a man as that would be blessed greatly by God in return for being a man of God like that. And in part, one would be right. This man was wealthy. He had riches. This man was fruitful. He had a large and wonderful family. This man was vital and full of life, enjoying good health. And yet, this man was stripped of everything in a remarkably short time. His goods were plundered and destroyed. His ten children were killed. He was afflicted with painful sores that covered him from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. He was reduced to abject and utter misery. He sat in ashes, suffering both within in his soul and without in his body. Do you know this man? That's right. His name is Job. And what happened to him didn't make sense. Didn't make sense to him. Didn't make sense to his wife. Didn't make sense to his friends. You, you see, in Job's day, they understood that if good things happened to you, then you were a good person. But if bad things happened to you, you must be a bad person. You must have done something wrong. But Job hadn't. He was blameless. God said so. God said so. One might think that God owed him. And after a time of this suffering, Job himself 
he, he couldn't take the suffering anymore. He became frustrated with God and what God had allowed in his life, what God had done, what his life therefore had come to. And so he had some questions for God. One might say that Job felt he had some grasp on the mind of Yahweh, that he had some right <laughs> to provide some counsel to God. And in response to Job, you, you could read this if you turned this afternoon to Job chapter 38 and following, God thunders from the eye of a storm. Why do you talk about, why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about, Job? Pull yourself together. Up on your feet. Stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. To which the collective people of God say, uh-oh. This is definitely, this is not good. This isn't good. God follows with over 60 questions. <laughs> questions like, um, where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, you know, you know, since you know so much, who decided its size? <laughs> I mean, certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? Or questions like, have you ever gone to the true bottom of things, Job? Explored the labyrinthine caves of deep ocean? Do you know the first thing, dear friend, about death? Do you have one clue regarding its dark mysteries? Or do you presume to tell me what I'm doing wrong? Are you calling me a sinner so you can be a saint? And then we read what Paul quoted when God says, who confronts me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. In other words, God is in nobody's debt. Nobody ever gives God a gift and stands back smugly in the knowledge that God must now repay them. And this is what Paul has been on about all along. Glorying in, rejoicing in, celebrating, and now singing about the truth that all is of grace. And only of grace. To think of it being any other way at all is to completely misunderstand the very nature of God himself. Who are we to question him? Who are we to doubt his ways? Listen, family. Oh, this strikes me so freshly right now in this moment. Why would we want it any other way? I will take all the other ways of God if I can have the grace of God. Give me everything else you've got. I can take it as long as I have grace. It's like the life preserver that keeps me bobbing in the, in the sea of my circumstances. It's holding on to grace. Because there's nothing that I could have done 
to put God in my debt. There's nothing any of us can do to cause him to owe us anything. We are the ones who stood with a debt we could not pay. Do you know what? I mean, maybe you would say, because you're theologically minded, well, I could pay it. That's true with your eternal damnation. It's the only way. It's the only ability you have. It's that or grace. See, it's, it's not I, but through Christ in me. He made a way that freed me and can free you from all of your debts. No fate I dread. I know that I'm forgiven. The future sure. The price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. Stand and sing. Turn to a neighbor. Turn to a neighbor and say, my only hope is Jesus. You may be seated. Turn with me in your... Turn with me in your Bibles now to Romans eleven thirty six, a Romans eleven thirty six a the first part. So we're we're noting the wondrous structure of this amazing songwriter. I mean, don't you feel a little inadequate when you come to Paul? Like he can write this amazing letter, and he writes great songs too. I mean, come on already. This wondrous structure in this hymn of praise began with three attributes. And then it continued with three questions connected to those three attributes. And now we see the hymn ends with three prepositions. Powerful prepositions. Three life-altering prepositions. Who could have known that three little prepositions could do so much? But they can because of who they're connected to. See, the center of our wonder and worship and exaltation as Christians is God. The world marvels. The world expresses wonder. The world worships. But so often, the center of their worship is not God. And we in the church cannot assume this because worship often loses its way in the church. You see, our worship, if we're not careful, can become all about the space, the lights, the musical style, the people playing and singing, the technology we use to make it possible can all become a performance and a show. Now, the pursuit of quality is not wrong. It's just 
Well, it's not the most important thing. Is this not why Matt Redman wrote what he did years ago, providing a gentle rebukes, a gentle rebuke in, in hopes of a course correction for the church? When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And this is what Paul sang. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Family, the origin and cause and decisive reason for everything is God. God is the source of all things and all things come from Him. Friends, absolutely everything is dependent on God for its existence. From the very first moment it was to the very moment it is not. God is sustaining all things by the word of His power. It is through his active involvement that we live and move and have our being. Every living creature is dependent upon him at all times for every moment of life, every beat of their hearts, every breath that goes in and out of their lungs. Brothers and sisters, God is the aim and the end of absolutely everything. <laughs> all things are to Yahweh, whether we eat or drink or do anything, do all to the glory, to the glory of God. All of creation exists and all of history is designed to display the greatness, beauty, goodness, sovereignty, and majesty of God. And therefore, He should always and ever be the center of our thoughts, the object of our adoration, wonder, and the absolute aim of our worship. And not just our worship, right? But all creatures of our God and King, we want them to lift their voices and with us, sing, stand, and sing. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Romans eleven thirty six B. Don't you? You know, it never, never struck me singing that song before. That this is what we should be like. The songwriter's like, hey, oh, hey, son, praise him. Like when I'm walking from my external garage into my house and I see the moon, it should be like, oh, and hey, moon, 
praise him. And when I see a coyote on the hike like I did a few days ago, hey, coyote, praise him. Hey, kids, praise him. Hey, dog, praise him. Pine tree, praise him. Hiking path, because I need a path. Praise him. If we will not praise him, did not Jesus say, the rocks and the stones will cry out. Oh, man. Wouldn't it be great to have a bunch of crazy grace people walking through Salida like, hey, praise them. You know, just like a bunch of, like a whole bunch of us. I think that'd be pretty cool. (laughs) When Paul began his letter to the Romans, he reflected on the tragedy. And it's a tragedy today that this God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This God who was meant to be prized and adored and followed and worshipped and pursued and obeyed by all of the creatures that He had made, the men and women that He had made, that they failed. And they gave glory to creatures and things and, and idols that they made with their own hands. This God who's meant to be adored was rejected. And all humanity, Paul writes in Romans 3.23, fell short of the glory of God. And then the grace of God. the Son of God, was raised to the glory of God so that for all of those who would believe in Him, and if you're not believing in Him him here today, if you are not prizing and adoring and valuing and ascribing worth to this God, don't wait a moment. Don't wait a moment. Because he He died for you And he went into a grave for you. And he rose again for you so that you now could rise in him. You could rise with him. You could rise from the dead and your sin and the falling short of the glory of God because of Jesus. And thus, in the power of the Spirit of God, you could now share in the glory of God. (laughs) so let's do this let's live for the glory of God I love the I love the first question or the first statement of the Westminster uh, confession well question and answer I was right the first time what is the chief end of humanity. What is the chief end of men and women? The chief end of every man and every woman, every woman is to glorify God by, and my 
Teacher John Piper said instead of and, it's by. I glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Not and enjoying Him forever. Because my enjoyment gives glory to God. My enjoyment and joy is not at odds with the glory of God and my glorifying God. Because what we often think is, oh, I give God glory. So that means, oh, in church, singing songs, reading my Bible, giving. No! Like, by enjoying him and everything he's given me, I'm glorifying him as long as I'm running around going, sun, praise him, moon, praise him. Oh, pepperoncinis and salami and turkey and ham and onions and, and French loaf with like everything seeds on it yesterday when I was on my hike. Praise God. <laughs> taste buds, praise him as you're tasting this goodness that is from God. To him be the glory forever, Paul writes. Amen.